On air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, calls from the agriculture sector to fast-track visas for workers. We have an agronomist that with this low unemployment rate haven't been able to find locally, so we've got a person that we're trying to sponsor at the moment and that, uh, that process is quite uh, onerous for that individual and un- not knowing when their future might be locked in to stay in Australia and continue in that role. And look out, Tamworth, Smithton is firmly on the country music map. Stewie French, who now resides in Nashville and with his French family band, said we're going to do this muster and I'm helping Eric get some musos together. Would you like to come down? So, And I've been really fortunate that the Rotary Club of Smithton have invited me back each year, so I haven't missed one yet. Another success for the Devil Country muster in Tam- Tasmania's northwest. I was going to say Tamworth. No, Tamworth Country Music and uh, Smithton. Uh, just behind that story later in the program. And the red tape delaying visas for workers in agriculture. That story in just a moment. G'day, Tony, with you on this Monday, where we also look at the continuing battle against fall armyworm. What's the latest with what's happening to try and fight that problem? The fall armyworm, of course, detected in Tasmania as well as other mainland states. Uh, also, details of a survey which you can take part in about the well-being of the farming sector. A bit of rain about, so we'll take a look at the weather and we'll take your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438 922 936, that number, 0438 922 First up today, Tasmanian Premier Jeremy Rockliffe says the federal government must do more to fast-track visa applications to ease the workforce situation in agriculture. Speaking at the Hillwood Berry Farm in the state's north, Jeremy Rockliffe says the expansion of agriculture in the state is being held back by the slow rate of approving visa applications. We have very strong businesses, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, agriculture and horticulture right across Tasmania, uh, that are crying out for workers uh, to ensure that they can, their hard-earned yakka when it comes to growing the fruit and the berries is harvested in the right time. So nothing is wasted uh, and everything is consumed uh, where, when and where it should be. What we do need is more workforce and greater workforce capability. And that's where the federal government need to step up and ensure they do have the resources uh, to process those very important visa applications. I've written to the Prime Minister about this, reflecting uh, the concerns in and around uh, Tasmania uh, and the need for uh, more people to come into Tasmania to contribute to our economy and to support very important businesses, not just in the agriculture and horticultural sector like we're here with Hillwood, uh, but right across the tourism and hospitality and other sectors that are important for Tasmania in a growing economy. Uh, We don't want uh, the lack of workers to be the bottleneck on Tasmania's success. And at the moment, uh, there is a bottleneck when it comes to the processing of visas, ensuring we can get that workforce capability here in Tasmania Uh, both skilled and unskilled migrants is what we need in Tasmania to support uh, businesses such as Hillwood Berries uh, to grow and prosper and get that high quality fruit uh, off and into markets uh, when it should be. Tasmania is willing to play a role as I indicated to the Prime Minister in my correspondence and ensure that the team at State Growth are ready to come in behind and to ensure that we are providing the resources uh, working 
supporting their families but also supporting businesses and a growing economy in Tasmania. And with those few words, perhaps I'll hand to Simon uh, to give a more practical example of uh, the need. Thank you, Simon. I'd like to echo the thoughts of um, the Premier on, on the thoughts on uh, the slow turnaround times on visas. We here at Hillwood Berries use both long and short term um, workers that require visa processing and uh, in some instances we may have a, a recruitment for a workforce. Uh, we want to come in for a particular harvest window and, and that window is in a matter of weeks and we can uh, have situations where those visas aren't processed in time where we hit a visa window. Likewise on the other side we have an agronomist that uh, you know, with a small um, low unemployment rate haven't been able to find locally so we've got a person that we're trying to sponsor at the moment and that, uh, that process is quite uh, onerous for that individual and un not knowing when their future might be actually uh, locked in to stay in Australia and continue in that role. So from both sides of our harvest to our experienced workforce there are times when these visa delays can affect uh, people's, people's lives and, and knowing what's ahead for them. Look, as a percentage of uh, the number of visas that we apply for, the majority are in that harvest labour out of the uh, palm scheme, uh, but we still have skilled workforce requirements as well. But obviously, uh, through COVID, the shortage of workers has uh, put more onus on the palm scheme, and that being that uh, nationwide um, farms, including Tasmania, the, the number of workers recruited from the palm scheme has exponentially increased, so that essentially is putting pressure on that. So that needs to be resourced, that program for the agricultural sector um, and other hospitality, um, meatworks and the likes are all in requirement for workers out of that um, palm scheme. How long has this been an issue, these visa processing delays, and why is it so critical that there's action now? Well, it's critical because we've all got crops to pick and we've, uh, you know, there's only a certain time that we can get um, that crop picked or we've got other, industri other industries that we are helping with, with the being meatworks that um, have animals ready to go but don't have the workforce on the ground. So it is critical and it's, it's, just, it's only getting exacerbated by the requirement of the program. Simon Dornoff from Hillwood Berries echoing the call by Tasmanian Premier Jeremy Rockliffe for the federal government to fast-track visa applications to ease the worker shortage. Two farmers have joined forces to put together and export a 35,000-tonne bulk shipment of milling wheat to the Middle East in what could be a first for the industry. Western Victorian grain grower Andrew Wiedemann and his West Australian counterpart Barry Large have started the company LW Investments Australia to export grain, including their own, directly from farmers to the end users. The ship has been loaded at the Port of Geelong and will sail for the Middle East this week. Andrew Wiedemann says end users like Amman Flour Mills want to buy directly from growers. We've been talking to Amman Flour Mills for quite some time. They have been purchasing wheat from Australia previously and barley, uh, but they have been talking about trying to connect directly with farmers, directly with grain coming off their farm uh, and basically ending up uh, at their uh, facility over in Amman. And a long time spent lining up the logistics, but now it's, it's all happening. Yes, look, it is. Yeah, we're loading the ship today uh, out of Geelong. Uh, we're using, obviously, the Reardon facility this time to uh, help work through all of the complexities of it. Uh, it's certainly been a, a learning curve outside of the normal farming practices, dealing with shipping lines and uh, demurrage and all these other potential issues that could increase the overall cost of it. But 
the support we've had from the farmer network has been amazing. I wanted to ask how you as a farmer have, have sourced 35,000 tonnes of wheat. Some of it's your own, but, but where'd you get the rest? Yeah, so look, it's all been sourced through um, other farmers from the top end of the Mallee all the way down to uh, almost the Southern Divide. Uh, we've had a lot of grain that we've unfortunately not been able to take because of the quality of the season, but there's certainly been those farmers that have been fortunate enough to have that good quality grain, we've been able to buy that at a reasonable price in the marketplace. And, uh, yeah, it's just sort of connecting, I suppose, the dots. And, you know, long-term, uh, you know, our hope and our passion is to try and make sure that those farmers that want to know more about where their product ends up uh, are involved in this process because... Uh, I think, you know, traditionally a lot of farmers have tipped it to a bulk handler or to a local grain store and never really thought about where their grain ends up. But in this case, it's actually meeting those people that are using it and, and listening to their story too about why they're trying to work more closely with the uh, production end rather than through the middleman. What are the logistics for loading? Have you got that grain accumulated at port or is it being trucked down from on-farm storage? Yeah, so look, the shipment is just short of 35,000 tonnes. We've got close to 20,000 tonne already accumulated uh, close to the wharf. Uh, we're now looking at uh, logistics of bringing it from up country. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of truck movements, uh, Angus, and uh, a lot of people that are obviously employed through this process from the trucking lines right through to those that have storage as well up country. We've used small private stores as well to accumulate some grain in. The farmers wanted to sell directly at harvest, but... Uh, most of the grain is coming directly off the farm now uh, from out of all of those areas we've spoken about. Obviously a big concern for farmers when marketing their grain is, is getting paid well and, and getting paid on time. Uh, how have you gone about securing those payment terms? Yeah, so look, uh, to do business the way that we wanted to do it, and this is what's taken um, quite a long time to talk through with, uh, with Aman is that they put the money up front and then we know we've got that secure capital to be able to buy the grain off the farmer and that's the only way that we were ever intending to buy it is to make sure that farmers get paid i mean after being an advocate for payment to farmers for a long time and we've changed obviously through that process the payment terms uh, we've been paying farmers and also contractors where we can get the logistics of paperwork in place within five days of end of week uh, and we've in some cases paid a lot of people a lot quicker than that so essentially you've been the one sourcing and paying for that grain on, on behalf of the Omanis? That is correct, yes. So it's us, we're sourcing the grain uh, and then paying the farmer for it uh, and then uh, the grain then is loaded onto the ship. What's the motivation, Andrew? I mean, you, you talked about provenance and, and creating better linkages between growers and, and those end users, but, I mean, at the end of the day, how do the dollars stack up in terms of what, what the farmer's getting paid going through this process compared to just dropping it off at the local bulk handler? Yeah, so look, Angus, what we're looking to do is obviously pay farmers with good storage for that storage. Uh, and that's the key here is to make sure that uh, those that have got good quality storage, got good quality systems in place, uh, information around, uh, you know, the growing of the grain and things will come in time uh, as we implement those. But it's really a starting point uh, now is to try and find those farmers uh, with you know, excellent storage and there's been big investments uh, right throughout the Wimmera and Mallee from farmers and uh, collecting those things. But we really just want to pay them well for that storage uh, and uh, try and create a new pathway to market for them. And, uh, you know, a lot of farmers' meetings that I've been to, you know, in the advocacy space, uh, farmers have been asking about this for some time. 
Um, the feedback has just been amazing. Um, you know, there are a few detractors out there, like there are in, in certain circles on, on different issues, but at the end of the day, the support that we've had has uh, just... It's actually been a lot more than I thought we would have seen. So is there a price premium now, or, or do you hope that will come as this develops? So, look, it really depends on the global market. When we set the pricing, Angus, uh, it's all been set against the global pricing benchmarks that are in place. So then it's a matter of looking down through the supply chain, looking where the costs are and where we can minimise those costs, and then obviously rewarding the farmers for that. So that's all been a part of the process and will be a part of the review that we'll do once the ship leaves Australia. Uh, and uh, we know what the final overall cost of charges will be. Has it been done before? I'm not aware that this direct sort of farmer-to-the-market end has been done before like this, Angus. Uh, certainly in containers, um, I've been involved in that for quite some time. We're not a bulk shipment, uh, but I think this is uh, the starting point. And, and uh, if it has been done, it's probably not been publicised as much as perhaps this. Yeah, I mean, like I said, the growers that have been involved to date, um, they've been paid, paid you know, fair market value for their grain and uh, have been keen to be involved right from the start. So I think from, from all ends, um, you know, we've tried our very best and uh, hopefully it's a success and, and hopefully it's a long-term relationship that, um, you know, we've developed here and, and certainly, you know, Victorian farmers and uh, Western Australian farmers eventually might really benefit from that end-to-end connection and developing their own systems on their own farms and a new supply chain pathway here um, developed in Australia. Andrew Wiedemann, a farmer in Western Victoria and director of LW Investments Australia, which has been set up to export grain directly from farmers to end users in areas like the Middle East. Coming up, we'll look at the health of farmers. It comes under the microscope in a moment. Dust off the plates a relative bought you that you've always hated and bring them to North Hobart because this weekend it's the Greek Festival and plate smashing is guaranteed. Hi, I'm Lucy Cutting. Join me at my Big Fat Greek Broadcast this Sunday in North Hobart. It's a Tassie celebration of Greek culture. Come along or listen in Sunday morning from 10 on the Listen app, TV Channel 25, online or on ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. A little bit wet in uh, certain areas of the state. We'll check in with the Bureau at about 10 minutes from now. See how much rain there is about. The National Farmers Federation and Norco Dairy Co-op have joined forces to commission a National Farmer Wellbeing Survey. Jennifer Nichols asked Norco CEO Michael Hampson why farmers should get online and spend just five minutes filling in the survey. This is the first survey that we're looking to take across the entire agricultural sector in Australia just so that we can get a really good handle in conjunction with the National Farmers Federation of the issues that are faced out there by farmers so that we can use the information from this survey to better inform policies and support packages to help farmers through the times that we all know are difficult in agriculture. Gosh, we've had everything across Australia, floods, fires, still drought in some places. Yeah, and, and, and unfortunately, um, you know, we'd like to think that those things won't be part of our future, but I think we all know at some particular point in time they will be. And the importance of this survey and, you know, getting farmers to jump online for five minutes, it'll just take five minutes of time um, before midnight this Friday so that we can get the information and some details so that we can, again, just better inform 
policymakers so that you know packages, support assistance can be ready to go and rolled out effectively the next time we have one of those you know natural disasters, which you know we have plenty. You know, as you say, fires, floods, droughts, plagues, disease. There's a number of things that can challenge farmers all over this country and. You know, they really are the backbone of this country. We need to do what we can, when we can, to support them. What are some of the questions? In terms of the survey, it's about asking them, you know, what are the really the antecedents that drive issues for them on farm? How are they feeling? What are the triggers? How do they get access to support? And when is that more likely to be the, the right support at the right time? And using this information, we can foresee that, well, this event may be occurring. You know, fall armyworm might be coming through or there might be these locusts that are developing. There may be, you know, again, bushfires, a drought that we foresee on the future. And we can get these packages in place, these policies, these support programs so that we can we can help farmers much more timely into the future. And so are you drilling down into regions, Michael Hampson? Uh, yes. Each farmer will, will say where they're from. It's certainly confidential, but hopefully we get a good cross-section across all areas in Australia and from all sectors, you know, whether they're dairy farmers, which, you know, we obviously have a couple of hundred dairy farmers that support us and supply us their milk. But, you know, there's cropping farmers, there's beef farmers, there's, there's sheep farmers, there's macadamia farmers. Anyone involved in the agricultural sector, we're really asking for five minutes of their time so that we can in turn use this information to help policymakers really help them when the next event comes along. And unfortunately, we know that there will be another event at some particular point in time in our future. Norco itself, your cooperative, has suffered $142 million in losses alone with the Lismore floods and the loss of your ice cream factory there and the cost of rebuilding. How do you think that this kind of survey will be considered by politicians? Oh, look, I think firstly, I mean, Minorco and our members have certainly had our challenges over the last 12 months, but we certainly recognise that we're not on our own and there's there's a lot of support that is needed across many areas in the country, many agricultural sectors, not just dairy, but again, beef, cropping, etc. The, the widespread floods that we've seen in in New South Wales and Victoria, you know, there's a lot of dairy farms there, but there's many other farms. I think sometimes we think it's not okay to say that you're not okay when really it is okay to say when you're not okay and to recognise those things and to get assistance and for that assistance to be ready and available as soon as possible. And and indeed, um, in some instances, before there is, you know, quite significant trauma that could occur through the various significant events that have occurred, you know, had a number of conversations with farmers in our region that suffered complete wipeouts of herds, dairies, fences, you know, their entire, you know, years of genetics of cows washed away in the river. And, and that's a really traumatic event. You know, I've still got burnt in memories when it was actually occurring, you know, in having a discussion with one of our farmers, just just feeling that, you know, their entire life was and their entire you know, work that they'd done and, and indeed the heritage of their family had been washed away and destroyed by these events. And they're incredibly traumatic and, and we need to make sure that we're looking after everyone and as a, as a country and this survey will better help certainly ourselves and in our partnership with the National Farmers Federation to inform policymakers what's needed when and importantly, have packages ready to go so that they don't have to be developed 
once an issue occurs. Look, uh, Derry Cooperative CEO Michael Hampson talking there to Jen Nichols about the survey from the National Farmers Federation as well to put the National Farmer Wellbeing Survey. Uh, just put that in your search engine and uh, you can get more details of that and take part as well. We're continuing with that theme of health and grain growers is encouraging farmers to look at installing an automatic external defibrillator on farm. Grain Growers CEO Shona Gavel says the organisation wants farmers to train in what to do if something goes into, someone at least goes into cardiac arrest, but also think about their own heart health. She says they're doing this by promoting February as the Heart Health Month. Heart Health Month for us, it's actually an initiative that came out of our wellbeing group that our staff hold here. They look at um, physical and emotional and emotional programs each month for our team here and they always like to connect it out into grower land so to make it sure that it's an initiative our growers can get behind as well. Uh, so it is Heart Health Month and what we identified is that there's some growers out there who are doing some great things on farm in raising awareness about heart health. And so we're putting the call out at the moment that you need to protect your heart and one of the great ways of making sure that there's good things there is to have some AEDs in your farm workshop or, or on the farm, especially in those more uh, regional and rural locations. Is it just looking at things like AEDs or is it making sure that workers are up to date with first aid and, and that kind of thing and, and checking in with your doctor? What, what are you looking for and what are you trying to promote? So grain growers actually have a really extensive uh, first aid and health push at the moment, Brooke. So in addition to our Heart Health Month focus, we've actually also been rolling out some rural and regional first aid workshops. These workshops are actually looking at real-life scenarios of, of activities or injuries that can happen on farm and making sure that we're taking this really critical training out into the communities as well. Uh, we've been running those across a few different states at the moment. The feedback's been really awesome um, and it just means that there's more regional communities now that have a qualified first aider because we're able to bring those, those courses directly to the communities where they're needed. You've touched on this uh, a little bit, but why would it be really important for a farming business to look at having a defibrillator on property or in the working shed uh, um, and with easy access to it? It's all about timing, Brooke. The statistics show that uh, the quicker that you can get help to someone, the greater the chances of survival are. And especially when there are things, uh, you know, with coronary issues, if you have that defibrillator there and can actually get the heart rhythms working again quicker, you're really increasing the chances of survival there for anyone that's undergoing um, that, that sort of critical situation. And likewise, if you don't have an AED on the farm or within reach um, in a local community area, it's why it's even more important to have that first aid training. We actually have a staff member here who um, went uh, had a cardiac uh, arrest a couple of years ago and it was his family that had undergone some CPR training that were able to deliver that, that life-keeping support and, and kept him going until emergency services were actually able to, to get and reach him there. So that just really underpins the need for it to be, you know, have the equipment on the farm or, or in your community that can um, be of assistance. But likewise, that first aid training is also really critical just for a personal and an individual perspective. Do you have stats on what sort of numbers maybe when it comes to heart health and, and farmers? Like, is it something that you're seeing more farmers at risk of, of heart health or is it a, a lower number? Do you know what the sort of stats are there, Shona? 
there's a lot of statistics around it. It's actually a pretty sobering one across, um, in, you know, not just farming, but across everywhere, Brooke. Coronary heart disease is actually the leading cause of death in people between 45 to 64. You know, that's a that's a really sobering statistic and underpins why it's just so important that, that you're looking at things to, to take care of yourself and those that are around you. It's also one of those things I've been talking a little bit about those emergency measures, but there's other things that we recommend. The Heart Foundation, for example, says that anyone 45 plus, that they um, you should be out there and having an annual heart health check to make sure that um, that you're as well as you could be and that you look at measures, you know, in terms of diet and lifestyle to underpin that as well. Grain Growers CEO, Shona Gavel. Steve Glover is a farmer at Yelana on the Eyre Peninsula and has an AED set up in his shed on the farm. He says heart health is something that is always at the back of his mind, coming from his family's own personal experience. It's been a big topic in our family. Um, over the years, my father died from a heart attack in uh, 1995, so that's a while ago now. But So immediately, uh, heart health is an issue in our family and, of course, uh, that puts everyone in a, a high-risk category um, you know, uh, going forward, which uh, which is, is interesting. Well, not a lot of fun, a bit of a wake-up call, I suppose, but then uh, turned out, turned around uh, that uh, I had heart trouble myself as a 43-year-old, which... Um, Seems like yesterday. I know it's not, but it seems like yesterday. And um, and so that, once again, it's put everyone else in a higher risk category for heart health. So it's front and centre in our family for sure. Heart health. So uh, yeah, not a topic that we're uh, far from at any time. We don't really discuss it often. It's just an underlying thing. I mean, we've all got things going on, different things, and, and yeah, heart health is uh, just one of those, I guess. What have you done in, on your property there, Steve? So on our property, um, we've we had a chance to put uh, an AED, like a, a defib. Machine's not as a side defibrillator. Can't even say it now. <laughs> um, but we, we got a, we had the opportunity to install an AED defib machine, and so we've got that uh, in place here, here on the at the workshop on the farm, and it's a, it's a good thing. Like you know, just in case someone needs it, if one of us needs it on any given day, it's not too far away. Or if someone else, you know, visiting comes through, we have quite a few people visit our shed, and you know, someone else needs it. Well, then we've got it there. We've had it. I don't know, it might be two or three years. I'm not sure. It's probably seven. I don't know. I don't know. It's not been used. I'm pretty happy with that. And uh, hopefully it'll stay right in that little box right where it is for a long time to come. Yeah, that's Yolana Farmer, Steve Glover, speaking with Brooke Neindorf about uh, farmers installing an automatic external defibrillator on farm. Coming up, the latest on full army worms, plus the devil country music muster at Smithton, and also a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Lucy Shannon. Thanks, Tony. Making news. The federal government is planning a major overhaul of Australia's $3.3 trillion superannuation sector. The government has released a consultation paper on legislating a purpose for people's retirement savings. Treasurer Jim Chalmers has proposed scaling back generous tax breaks for super and ending early access to retirement savings. Police divers are scouring the Murray River for signs of a 34-year-old Tasmanian man thrown from a capsizing boat near Mildura on Sunday morning. The man had been attending a Bucks party on a houseboat when he and three other men sailed off in a smaller vessel. New South Wales and Victorian police are searching an area near the entrance to the Mildura Marina where the man went missing. And the CFMEU is calling for a ban on the use of deadly engineered stone products, saying if the federal government doesn't take action, it will. The 
use of the stone products has led to many in the sector inhaling crystalline silica dust leading to the lung disease silicosis. The CFMEU has given a deadline of July the 1st next year for the government to implement the ban, otherwise its members will refuse to install it. More news with Will Murray at 1. And time now to check the latest on the weather. Michael Conway joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Michael. G'day, Tony. Uh, what's rain in the south or showers in the south and what's happening in the north? Yeah, showers in the south uh, and in the north it's it's mostly fine. There's also showers about the west and developing up the east coast during the day as this cold front or it's, it's really a cool front, it's not that cold trough uh, moves up the east coast. So at the moment in the southeast there's, there's onshore winds uh, bringing a bit of the drizzly um, raggedy showers uh, but that that should start clearing any time now in fact it's looking a little brighter at the outside at the moment we've um, we've had 2.8 millimeters here in Hobart so far uh, and the other places around I, I sh- I'll start on the 24-hour figures Matt Psycho Islands had six millimeters was the top reading in Taz Mount Reed had five and Southport had four and then the, since 9am Mount Reed and Lake Margaret have had four millimeters and Grove have had three and and uh, that 2.8 in Hobart Okay, Michael, what sort of week is ahead of us with the weather? Yeah, it's going to fine up. So the showers will move through as the as the warmer air gets flushed out to the east and the cooler air comes in. It'll be um, fining up. Uh, the the there won't it's not expected to be much precipitation at all tomorrow. Perhaps just in the in the in the far northeast. And then for the till Friday, um, we're going to get gradually warming conditions. And Friday and Saturday look like hot days again for most of the state, especially down the Upper Derwent Valley and around the southeast. And looking at um, 35 for for Hobart on that day, so so quite warm on uh, quite hot on Friday. Okay, what sort of temperatures leading up to uh, the weekend can we expect? Just average. Uh, the coolest day will be tomorrow, uh, looking at 18. Uh, for Hobart, although it's it's similar to today, really. Uh, it should warm up a little bit more in Hobart after these showers flush out. And then on Wednesday and Thursday, it just gradually warms up, so high tw- high 20s on Thursday and then around the mid-30s for, for Friday. Okay. And the weekend, what's um, what's it looking like down the track? Yeah, it's it's very uncertain. The, the computer models are a bit all over the place at the moment. So, uh, so one, one one model has a a weak low moving over, which enhances the rain a bit around around most of the state on Sunday. But we'll see how that one pans out. Okay, watch this space. We'll probably talk about it tomorrow mm-hmm. and the next day. <laughs> um, yeah. Warnings. What have we got? There is uh, no warnings today, and we have uh, we have. Uh, a strongly warning out tomorrow for the far northwest, Bank Strait and Franklin Sound and east of Flinders Island. That's it. Okay. The coastal waters and swell, Michael. What's happening out on the waters? Yeah, sure. We have uh, generally the winds today. Well, the, they've, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll read it out as was written for the whole day. Western northwesterly is 10 to 20 knots, turning southwesterly in the western south during the morning and turning southeastly up the east coast during the afternoon. Tomorrow the wind's about south to southwesterly is at 15 to 25 knots and reaching up to 30 knots at times in the morning about the far northwest, Bank Strait, Franklin Sound, east of Flinders. Winds then tend south to southeasterly at 15 to 25 knots throughout in the afternoon. The swell's about we in the western south today. We have a west to southwesterly at 5 to 7 metres, 
Tomorrow it eases to three to four metres, uh, but still up at around five metres early in the south. The, in, about the north tomorrow and today and tomorrow, a westerly swell of around one, uh, one metre offshore. In the east today, we have a southerly of less than a metre, tending southwesterly four to five metres offshore in the south. And then tomorrow we have a southerly, southerly at one to two metres, tending southwesterly at three to four metres offshore in the south. And the wave riders, what's happening with them? Cape Sorrel is up at around five metres at the moment and Mariah Island is at 0.9 metres. Terrific. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Tony. See you later, Michael Conway from the Bureau with the latest information for you on the weather this week. going to be pretty hot towards the weekend, so we'll uh, get more details of uh, what it's looking like as we get closer and closer to the weekend. 35 degrees. Wooshka. It's pretty warm, isn't it? All right, coming up, we will talk about fall army worms and also donkeys helping out in the school. That story coming up as well. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Entries close February 28th. Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Let's look at one of the many pests that farmers uh, meet each day. Uh, during their work, fall armyworm. Just its name sends shivers down the spine of many horticulture producers. Entering Australia in early 2020, researchers have worked tirelessly to manage the relentless pest. But how much more can the industry do? And where to next in the battle to fight this highly invasive pest? Lucy Cooper filed this report. In a Queensland Department of Agriculture office in the small coastal town of Bowen in North Queensland, a team of scientists work around the clock in a fight against fall armyworm. Leading the charge is Siva Subramaniam, an entomologist who has lived in Bowen for the last 23 years. In just three short years, the team have investigated how to manage the pest, monitor the population, understand the biology of the new pest, monitor resistance and research natural enemies that are currently available. It's an extraordinary effort which Subra says has led them to make new findings on the most effective controls. We did quite a lot of survey around Queensland and uh, Western Australia and Northern Territory to look at what are the natural enemies for fall armyworm. And through that one we found around 15 different type of parasitic wasp uh, attacking fall armyworm. So that's a good source of information. The growers could to know what is actually available to control and there are some natural controls started to work. When the new pests come, always they take a bit of time to work. And also some predators and some uh, nuclear polyhetrovirus attack fall armyworm and some fungal product, fungal, also, fungal pathogen also attacking fall armyworm. And also we found some nematodes attacking fall armyworm. This, this sort of information actually helping to understand better and minimise their polarmyworm population and less rely on insecticides. In 2020, Subra and his team found that up to 80% of sweet corn crops were being decimated by fall armyworm. 
but current research has dramatically decreased this amount to about 30 to 40%. But for any horticultural production, this is still a high loss. So where does Subra think that leaves the hort industry in coming years? Are we going to be moving to a genetically modified future? The GM crop is a bit of a um, question for Australia, especially on food crops. But the GM corn and thing in uh, USA and Central America has been used for other purposes, but is getting some regulatory approvals and think it's in the GM crop is, is take time consuming and it's not the immediate solution. Maybe in the future some stage, but at this stage GM crop, GM crop is a bit questionable. For those who are on the outside looking in, what do they think the future holds for crops like corn and sweet corn that are particularly affected by fall armyworm? It is a relentless pest and I wouldn't want to be a corn grower. Um, we, we grow corn here for trial purposes. We, we're testing new products. There's a lot of Group 28s um, that uh, are looking at, being looked at for registration, um, but they're all the same group of, or the same mode of action. Um, and, you know, we only have a handful of um, effective uh, chemicals at the moment. So that little bit of resistance, when it does come, could cause... Um, could cause a collapse of the industry pretty much so um, it's high risk I don't know where you go from that whether you start looking down the GM path or what it's a possibility um, I believe that's what they're doing in the US it is a really difficult pest and it's it's not so much even in the same ballpark as Heliothus because fall armyworm is constant you know and they lay huge egg masses of up to 200 plus eggs um, and it's just, it's really hard to see them coming and, and to stop them without just spraying constantly. That's Levin Cookson, an agricultural field research agronomist in Bowen. He says it's a race against time against resistance. You know, this is an incredible pest um, that produces a, a hell of a lot of generations in a year and is, is perfectly capable of developing resistance at, at quite a rapid rate. So I think whilst there's only a handful of products that are available, they are going to get overused. It's, it's inevitable. And, yeah, any of these sort of management practices that don't involve using the chemistry, mate, they, you've got to use them uh, wherever you can. As research pushes ahead to seek a future where the impact of fall armyworm is decreased, Subra says... There are roadblocks ahead. Currently, one of the limiting factors is um, for us is the um, industry fundings. So most of the work currently funded by Queensland government for short term. So they we need more support and funding through the growers levy money to do more research work. So that is the important part of this one. The people can continue the work and uh, support the industry to get some management tools. At Siva Subramaniam, Queensland Department of Agriculture Entomologist based in Bowen, talking to Lucy Cooper about the latest research into fall army worm. And we don't talk about donkeys too often on the program, but we are going to right now. Donkeys are traditionally used as herd guards, but a school in central west New South Wales has found a new use for them. Bria, a 10-month-old donkey, has made the trip from the last stop donkey program in the Hunter Valley down to West Wyalong High School to help students cope with anxiety and stress. A reporter, Hamish Cole, went along to find out more. 
being in year 12, there's a lot of obviously stress and anxiety, I guess, sometimes. And like Bria just calms you down and makes you forget about everything and chill out a bit. So, yeah, it's been pretty good. That is Year 12 student Brianna Hennahan, one of dozens of kids at West Wyalong High School who are praising the arrival of Bria, a support donkey that is having an immediate impact. Every, like you just walk out and she'll be doing her little prance around the yard and you just, just have to stop and smile at her. Like It's just what it is, I guess. Just her. Science and agricultural teacher Julie Maslin was behind the push to bring the donkey to the school after watching an episode of Landline on how the animal is being used as herd guards. After the challenges the region has been through in the past year, Bria has been a welcome relief for students. Yeah, it is, it is amazing. We had a, a tough um, summer, um, or tough 12 months lately, um, for you know, floods and bushfires and just hardship in the community. And it's just really nice to... Um, for, for students of all ages to come out and have a bit of relief, whether it's Year 12 students that just need a bit of a brain break through to kids that just need um, a, a general break from the hardships from, from home um, and even the classroom and just to be able to come out and, and spend some time, the tactile feeling of, of brushing the donkey, um, running the hand through its hair and um, just being around Bria has just been amazing. It's been pretty hard for them to be able to um, concentrate, to be able to, I guess, be themselves. Um, there's pressures at home from their parents. Um, just the family life has quite, been quite difficult for them. So it's just, yeah, been fairly challenging um, for both, like even teachers, just, you know, trying to comfort these kids and, and give them the, the best opportunities and, um, and teaching environment. But having something like um, an animal like Bria has just been making that job a bit easier. It has brought a smile to both the students and the teachers. As we <laughs> just experiencing now, she's come over to us, but she does love human interaction. Um, she wants to know what's going on. Um, as we're speaking now, we're giving her a scratch, which is really cute. Um, but she's yeah, like a big dog. She's she's soft to touch and. She's quite funny. I don't know something about a donkey that makes you laugh. Um, <laughs> you think of the you know Shrek movie and and donkey and the the big ears they have. You know they they're a great animal to have around and and they've got such character. I feel like it's such a privilege to have what I probably call an unusual animal at the school. To be able to see the the kids' faces, um, the enjoyment they get out of being around the donkey and patting it. Um, it's yeah, I feel it's quite a privilege and a great opportunity for us all. Ricky Bishop is the school's student support officer. She says Bria is helping all of the kids with their mental health and studies. She is also just a benefit to all the students, like including our learning hub guys that can um, so our students with special needs and disabilities and things and behaviour issues. We can they come in here and they just like change a level. They shift a gear their mannerism, just the way they are. And all of a sudden, before they know it, they're standing there patting or brushing her and she's no issue. She doesn't stress them out. She brings everyone sort of calm. It's really special. It's got a lot of students that do struggle maybe socially with friends or um, home's pretty tough or it's just a nice little breakaway from the usual. This has resulted in more pupils seeking support. Well, she's just a gentle creature that doesn't judge, that doesn't have... Um, doesn't really care what your smell look like or what mood you're in because once you get near her she'll just distract you I guess 
a good sort of segue into let's talk about something else or let's focus on something else. Yeah, she, I think she's been a bit of a surprise for everyone, really, at the whole point of a donkey. But um, once they get in and meet her, then it's like she's awesome. Like she's just um, like look at her. She's just so chill. <laughs> she's so chill. But she does have her playful moments too. So everyone's getting used to her. So she does have a little gallop. And the couple of times she's done that, now she's feeling more comfortable. It's like whoa! But everyone just stands still, and she'll she'll do a little trot around you, and then go off have a drink, and then come back and ready for another pat sort of thing. Students can come and say. Can we have a chat? And I'm just more often than normal at the moment just grabbing my keys saying, let's go out and see Bray. And they're all on board. So, yeah, I get a lot more visitors lately. (laughs) This has meant the kids cannot get enough of the donkey. The students who meet Bria often go home and say, can I have a donkey (laughs) for a a pet? So, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's kicked off quite well. We've got students saying, we need two donkeys. We need three donkeys. We need four donkeys. Yeah, West Wyalong High School Student Support Officer Ricky Bishop ending that report from Hamish Cole on the donkey helping students cope with anxiety and stress. Dust off the plates a relative bought you that you've always hated and bring them to North Hobart because this weekend it's the Greek Festival and plate smashing is guaranteed. Hi, I'm Lucy Cutting. Join me at my Big Fat Greek Broadcast this Sunday in North Hobart. It's a Tassie celebration of Greek culture. Come along or listen in Sunday morning from 10 on the Listen app, TV Channel 25, online or on ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Don't forget that text line number 0438-922-936, Well, it may be just Tassie's answer to Tamworth, a homegrown seven-day country music festival. With the organiser is nearly 80 and the local Rotary Club has switched out barbecue fundraisers and bake sales for rigging up sound equipment and building stages. Our reporter Meg Powell jumped in the car yesterday to head to Smithton go and see the final performers at the Devil Country Muster. Most Rotary clubs stick to barbecues and bake sales when it comes to raising money, but not the Smithton Rotary Club, which about 10 years ago began working on an event which would one day grow into a seven-day annual country music festival. They call it the Devil Country Muster. So I'm Merrick Marshall and I'm um, from Smithton. was born in Smithton, so I've been here all my life virtually. I did go away working, but I returned. And you're the original creator of the Devil Country Muster? Um, it was my idea. Um, I like country music, so I used to travel around to quite a few musters and uh, country festivals and so I just got the idea that Smithton would be a a great place to have one because people like to travel to way out places and I thought Smithton was well away so I thought it would work. So you had this idea, when was that? It was probably back in about 2011 when I started trying to get it off the ground. 
and I was a member, and still am, a member of the Rotary Club of Smithton, and so I asked them, would they be prepared to back a muster or a festival? And um, they were happy to do that, and so that's how it got started. Gosh, that's a big undertaking for a Rotary Club. I can't <laughs> imagine there's many out there that think, oh, yes, we're going to run a music festival now. No, that's right. Uh, it, was, it was great, actually. Um, we decided that it was really worth the, the effort because at the time things was really in the community. The com- people were a bit down and out. There was lots of things going bad for the community and we thought this would help to help people to get up and get going again and it did that it uh, brought smith and looked like it was dying and yet it seemed to come to life in leaps and bounds once we started a muster so it really done what we set out to do i'm gina timms i'm a bernie born and bred girl now residing in port surreal and I've been an entertainer for 46 years. Gina, you were just down the coast at, at that time. Did you come up for the Devil Country muster in its early days? I haven't missed a muster yet, Meg, because my good mate or our good mate, Stewie French, who now resides in Nashville and with his French family band, said, we're going to do this muster and I'm helping Eric get some musos together. Would you like to come down? So... And I've been really fortunate that the Rotary Club of Smithton have invited me back each year, so I haven't missed one yet. What was that first one like? Both of you can answer that question. Yeah. Um, it was very scary. <laughs> uh, and we had it because uh, we were trying to find the right venue, so we started out on the wreck at Smithton, but it was very open and it was windy and rained quite heavily. Oh, dear. Uh, so... Uh, and it was later in the year, so we learned a lot of lessons. We did have it at the wreck for a couple of years, but we found better venues. And this is our third home because we've outgrown previous venues. We're here at day seven of the Devil Country Muster and I'm here with two volunteers, Jenny Wallace and Darcy Stewart. Hello, Thank you. Hello. What's it been like? Uh, day seven now. Are you tired? Very. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's been a long week, but uh, it's all been good, so, yep. What have your duties been? My main duties were getting the float ready to start off with and collecting money on the day, putting it in the safe and selling raffle tickets and now I've got a whole lot of bills I've got to pay tomorrow. How fun. <laughs> and what about you Darcy? Oh, I'm just general, like it's been, you know, obviously a couple of weeks of setting up and um, now, you know, you obviously got to shift a lot of gear and and this today is obviously start to pack up but um, this is uh, we can sit back and enjoy. Of course, most of the most of the big jobs are done. So I don't envy you in this uh, sweltering weather at the moment. Oh, it's just normal normal for Smithton. <laughs> <laughs> is it? <Yeah. laughs> so you're the muscles, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Hands on the ground. Yep. Jenny, you might remember then when Eric Marshall came up with this idea and brought it to the Rotary Club. What did you think? It's not common for a Rotary Club to run a music festival. No, it's not common at all. But we all thought nothing ventured, nothing gained. Give it a go. 
and that goes turned into 10 years of festivals. It has, yes. Are you a country music fan yourself? No, I must say I'm not, but <laughs> I still enjoy it. Oh, yeah. I've yeah, got a wide range of music, so country is part of that. So um, I really enjoy the music that comes along and, and to meet all the artists personally. They're a great bunch of people, so that's a privilege of being a, a part of it, organising it. So that's, yeah. Can I ask you some questions about the Devil Country Master? Yes. When did you come here? Today. The third day. The third. We came here today. I didn't. Today. I didn't. Oh, you came here before that. Yeah. Um. I came when it started. What do you think of it? Very good. Has it good. Been fun? Yeah. But what do you think of the music? Bad. <laughs> because that's no kids' songs. Great. <laughs> Great. Yeah, so, yes, and, and great from you, bad from you. Yeah. Different opinions. And quite good. And Gemma, ready? Sing your song. Dance, dance, dance with my hands and play. Jesus, sit up on my head. Very good. Sounds like you two have had a lot of fun. You might be. Sounds like you two have had a lot of fun at the muster. Hmm. Oh, and we go... I Something uh, that seems a little bit special about this festival is the way that the community gets on board. So the shops have got little displays in their windows. You've got buses from town. Has that always been the case? I think that's something that shows from the first one we had till now is how the people, uh, the community really enjoy it and they can see what it does for the place. And they just love to get behind it. And uh, so they do. They dress their windows up and the people in the shops get dressed in country gear and so they're all excited. It's just a whole community event now. Everybody's getting excited. I was talking to one shop owner and and she's been here a long time and she said, I'm already thinking about my theme for next year. So to have that excitement in the CBD of Smithton is awesome. Most of the events are here. Uh, We have our talent quest and then we have our walk-up musters, which gives people a chance just to walk up and have a sing. So they just, you know, come out of their caravans and some of them travel with their guitars and those campfire jam sessions and... Um, you know, that's what happened on Thursday night. They just come and put their name on the board and mm. we unearth some new talent and people having a good time and then they feel a bigger part of it as well because, mm. oh, I, well, I'm not on the main show, I'm on the stage and that's really important that we include those people because that's what country music's all about. We're a big family. Yeah, Glenn Campbell, favourite there from veteran performer and X Factor finalist Justin Stanley, ending that story from Meg Powell, speaking there to Devil Country Music Muster organisers, performers, volunteers and festival goers. Sounds like they had a great weekend or a great seven days at least. Now, don't forget to go online. Plenty of stories on ABC Rural and our ABC Rural Facebook page. You can make a comment there too about our stories. And that's our program for this Monday. We'll catch you after midday tomorrow.